as we're going to first of all look to God in prayer. Our Father, you know the needs that are here. All these services, struggles people face. But the ultimate issue, of course, the ultimate need is to make absolutely certain that we have a true, bona fide, real faith in Jesus Christ, Savior and Lord. Authentic, dynamic, real. Not on the basis of our supposed goodness, not on the basis of our religious efforts, but solely and exclusively on the basis of Jesus Christ's finished work. Where the second member of the Trinity came to die in our place for our sins. So, Father, with that as our starting point, I pray if there's anyone this morning who in any of these services has come and does not yet have that assurance that they have put faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone for salvation, it's our prayer that by the end that that has taken place and it's been authenticated. And, Father, for all who know you, all who love you, all who live for you, praying, Father, that we'll take these words, it's your word, and relate them in as practical a way as possible to everyday living. So these minutes are important. We're asking that once again that you would warm these hearts, engage these minds, shape these wheels, because again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we pray these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Guidance. Elizabeth Elliot was wrestling with that subject in her outstanding book, A Slow and Certain Light, where she tells of two adventurers who stopped by to see her. She tells us they were loaded with equipment for the rainforest east of the Andes. Now, if you've been in South America, you know that the Andes run north-south, and they cover seven countries in South America. It's a massive structure. Well, these adventurers have arrived on the scene, and she tells us they sought no advice, just a few phrases to converse with the Indians. But out of that encounter, she pens the following thoughts. Sometimes we come to God, as the two adventurers came to me, confident. And we think we're well-informed and well-equipped for our journey. But has it occurred to us that with all of our accumulation of stuff in life, something is missing now, interestingly, she suggests that we often ask God for too little rather than too much. Quote, what we need, what we know we need, a yes or a no, please, to a simple question or perhaps a road sign, something quick and easy to point the way. And then adds, what we really ought to have is the guide himself. Is that good? What we really need to have is the guide himself. Maps, road signs, 
GPS doesn't work in the Andes. Useful phrases are things. But infinitely better is someone who has been there before and knows the way. And that's your Lord. So now, with that in mind, what I want to do is to develop three significant recommendations that are found here in this passage that equip you and equip me as people who are on a journey in life to better discern God's guidance for our lives. And the first comes out of verse 12 down through verse 14, which we just read a few moments ago. That when needing God's guidance during times of transition, which is what the apostles were going through at that point with Christ ascended into heaven, first recommendation, seek God's will prayerfully. Notice how all this begins. Verse, verse 12. And when they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a seventh day's journey away. We're going to pause there at this point. Because what has taken place is that Jesus Christ has ascended into the heavens from the Mount of Olives. Now, as you know, in October I was there and I was around the Mount of Olives. Now, as you're looking at this, to the left, what you will see now is a scene of the Mount of Olives. To the right is you standing on the Mount of Olives, and you're given a panoramic view of Jerusalem. Of course, the Golden Dome is the Dome of the Rock. That's Islam's camping out place. But that was where the temple was. And so you see now the conflictedness geographically that is occurring within the confines of Jerusalem, right there. But as you're looking at that, what fascinates you and fascinates me is that these men now are traveling from the Mount of Olives back to the upper room in Jerusalem. When God in the Old Testament spoke of the Mount of Olives, one of his powerful statements comes out of Zechariah chapter 14, Verse 3, pertaining to the end times. There we are told, then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations. Speaking of Armageddon. As when he fights on a day of battle. On that day, his feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives. I'm in Zechariah chapter 14, verse 3, in the back of your older testament. On that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before Jerusalem to the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mountain shall move northward and the other half southward. Now, when Jesus Christ was mentoring his disciples just before his crucifixion, where did he position his disciples? on the Mount of Olives. And as he positioned them there, you could read about it in Matthew chapter 24. We're told that as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, 
Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Brilliant. He has positioned his students at the very setting in which both ascent and descent will occur. This gets them thinking. This gets us thinking. Got me thinking as I stood there, pondering these things. And while they're pondering these things, he would talk to them about what's to come. That's why they were so driven, as we noticed last week, for them to pose the question, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? They haven't taken into account an ascent and a descent as of yet. Now, what Jesus Christ has done by ascending into the heavens, he has prepared a place for you, prepared a place for me, according to John chapter 14, verse 3. So the stage is set. And now they're going to have to grapple with how do we make decisions in light of the fact that Christ is not with us, though he is above us. He has ascended into the heavens. Carry on now, verse 13. When they had entered, they went up to the upper room. Now notice there's a, there is an absolutist statement there. It is the upper room, not a upper room, an upper room. In other words, there is a designated place that they went to. Is that the upper room where Jesus washed the disciples' feet? They broke bread, Lord's Supper, and so forth? Well, we can't say for certain because there is also the upper room that's used to describe Mary's setting when people gather together to pray in the book of Acts at a later point. What we can tell you at this point is that the critical aspect to all of this is that there is a purpose for this gathering together. And notice who has come together. There's Peter and John, James and Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, you see. James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, there's Judas there, but not the Judas you might be thinking of, the one who betrayed Jesus. He's, he's long gone. Judas, the son of James. But I want you to mark what comes next in your text because it goes on to say all these, not some of these. There's an entirety. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. What that tells us then is that if you're going to discern God's will and you're seeking God's guidance, there's going to have to be a unity about you in relationship to both God vertically and God's people horizontally. There have been divisions in the ranks before Jesus Christ died where they were arguing who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. But what there has to be at the cross of Jesus Christ is the cementing of relationships where there is a unifying factor that comes into play that Jesus Christ died for each of our sins. And you see that there in the way in which they would relate to one another as they would discern God's will. They have made the two-thirds of a mile trek, you see, back to that upper room at this point. And now they are demonstrating an extraordinary sense of unity with one another. The kind of unity that where Luke the physician will use the phrase with one accord. 
Well, in Acts chapter 4 and verses 32-33, after Peter and John have dramatically presented the argument for Jesus Christ before the Jerusalem Council, they, when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. And can you continue to speak the word of God with boldness? They had come together to pray. There's a coming together, you see. Now, when a congregation is committed to understanding the guidance of God, there's a powerful principle of prayer that's operating both individually as well as corporately in the way in which we're seeking God's guidance for our lives. This word here, which is used to describe their coming together, means literally they stuck to praying. And when you are seeking God's guidance for your life, you need to stick to praying. There's a painting that I love. It's a nautical painting. And there's a story behind that painting that stands out in my mind. Some of you might know it. Where the writer tells us before the days of modern navigation, a traveler made the Atlantic crossing in a boat equipped with two compasses. One was fixed to the deck where the man at the wheel could see it. The other compass was fastened up on one of the masts. And often a sailor would be seen climbing up to inspect it. Passenger asked the captain, why do you have two compasses? This is an iron vessel, replied the captain. And the compass on the deck is often affected by its surroundings. But that's not the case with the compass at the masthead. That one is what we call above the influence. We steer, he said, by the compass above. Now, I would argue that when people are not walking with God, they are still attempting to seek God, but they are what I will call lower compass seekers. A compass that is being affected by so-called the iron vessel they're on. They are being affected as they try to navigate their waters by their surroundings. But the person who is committed to seeking God, discerning God's will, living for Jesus Christ daily, this is what I would describe as an upper compass person. Oh, they're alert to the lower compass and their surroundings. But simultaneously, they lift their eyes up to the vertical dimension. They want a compass from above that will guide and direct them when the one below is not offering them the clear perspective that's necessary. Now, are you a lower compass person or are you an upper compass person? Or do you tend to vary between the two depending upon the circumstances of the given day? Now, this is the sort of stuff that you and I have to deal with when we are wrestling with matters of guidance. And God wants to draw our attention to the fact that he desires oneness, that there's to be one accord with those who have come together 
what he calls the body of Christ. Because if there's distance between us, then there's going to be distance between us and God. And we will function as lower compass people and then wonder, where are you, God, when I'm trying to navigate my way? So now look for the person or the people that are most challenging for you to relate to right now in your life. Now you've identified them. Do you then deal with them based upon lower compass approach or an upper compass approach? When you pull all this together then, what God is saying before the Holy Spirit was going to come upon them, as we'll see next week, before the Holy Spirit came upon them, they had already established what I will call the togetherness principle, the oneness principle. So now look at the quality of your relationship with other believers. Am I in one accord with them? If so, you're lifting your eyes to the upper compass. Furthermore, am I committing myself to being devoted with them to prayer? We want God who intercedes through the second member of the Trinity to be the God who intervenes, involving all three members of the Trinity. So now, there you have it in verses 12, 13, and 14, the first recommendation. When you and I, when we're seeking God's guidance during the days of transition in our lives, and aren't we all in transition, you seek God's will prayerfully. This is our starting point. But now you and I are on to a second recommendation. And it begins in verse 15. That second of all, is when we need God's guidance during the, the times of transition, seek God's will scripturally. This is what Peter does. Peter. Now, Peter was the one, of course, that had created distance between himself and Jesus. When, just before Christ's crucifixion, he fled. And the word was out. Jesus had lost that sense of oneness with Peter because Peter lacked the willingness, the courage to stick with Jesus. But Jesus, in his gracious act, restored Peter to oneness. And some of us this morning need to be restored to oneness with God. And just as Peter denied Jesus three times, Jesus, in turn, used a three-step approach to restore Peter. And now Peter, with that sense of restoration in his soul, demonstrates courage among God's people. Show me somebody who is restored, and I'll show you someone who demonstrates courage. He was timid when he stood before that slave girl, wondering out loud if Peter was with Jesus. But now you're going to see a a reinvigorated boldness in Peter that will launch him out onto the streets of Jerusalem as he would explain the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the first evidence of leadership that I see now coming from Peter. Peter stood among the brothers, the company of 
persons was in all about 120. And notice how he begins. Brothers. Just to start, you, y'all. There's an inclusiveness here. That togetherness, that sense of with one another, includes Peter as well. That stands out. During World War II, Hitler commanded that all religious groups unite so that he could control them. And among the brethren assemblies, half complied, the other half refused. Those who went along with the order had an easier time of it, and those who didn't faced persecution. In almost every family of those who resisted, someone died in a concentration camp. When the war was over, feelings of bitterness, the writer tells us, ran deep between the two groups. There was tension. Finally, they decided the situation had to be healed. Leaders from each group met at a quiet retreat, and for several days, each person spent time in prayer examining his own heart in the light of Christ's commands. And then they came together. Francis Schaeffer, speaking of the incident, asked a friend who was there, what did you do then? Response, we were just one, he replied. Because as they confessed their hostility and bitterness to God and yielded to his control, the Holy Spirit created a spirit of unity among them. Love filled their hearts. Unity replaced division. Now when love so fills your heart where you've been seeking God's will prayerfully and now pursuing God's will scripturally, you're positioning yourself then to be able to discern the way in which God is guiding. Peter then says, brothers, despite his failures of having departed from Jesus, he's been restored to fellowship. So he says, brothers, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. He does not get up and say, here's what I think. No, this is leadership. Scriptural leadership. Peter gets up and he says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas. Now what I want you to see here under this category of seeking God's will scripturally is that there are three aspects, three aspects, that Peter utilizes here to be highly effective in determining how Scripture would guide and direct them towards a decision. The first aspect involved reviewing the circumstances. He describes what has just occurred. Judas has betrayed Jesus. Judas became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Now, they're thinking right away about the dynamics. They have been in that Garden of Gethsemane, which stands at the foot of the Mount of Olives, the foot, where Judas had led the soldiers 
to arrest Jesus. It's vivid in their minds. What are we going to do about this? They're wondering. Interestingly, in verse 17, Peter would go on to say he was numbered among us. It does not read he was one with us. It's very possible in the services that there will be those who are numbered among us. At the same time, you've got to understand that they are not necessarily one with us. That's why we continue to present the gospel of Jesus Christ. So that people will come to faith in Jesus. But if Jesus had one of the twelve who was who was who was part of the gathering, but not necessarily one with the gathering, so it will be true in churches throughout the ages. So now Peter's being realistic about the dynamics. He's reviewing the circumstances. He became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. He was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now the physician at this point, you're up to verse 18, offers this parenthesis. It's his insight. It, he's aware of what's taking place in current events. So should you, so should I. Because in verse 18, he goes on to say, Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness. And falling headlong, he burst open in the middle of, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akadama, that is, the field of blood. Just as Judas used monies for the sense of betraying Jesus, uh, Jesus. So likewise, through the years, people have gained monies illegally in order to betray those that God wants to use. Back to World War II. Hitler's birthday, April 20th, 1945. Goering stands outside his castle. It's an estate 50 miles outside of Berlin. The castle was named Karenhall in memory of his first wife, Karen. The writer tells us it was a repository of his unquenchable appetite for opulence and luxury. Anyone with eyes could see that the Third Reich was flushed with, with such, but it was Jewish money by which he built his castle. For as Jews were sent to concentration camps and onward then to death, the monies would go into Gehrig's and others' hands. But now he could see the end was in sight and that the Allied forces were going to defeat the Axis forces. Gehrig wants to get out. 24 Luftwaffe trucks lined the road outside Karenhall and they were stuffed with the antiques, paintings, and silver Gearing hoped to salvage from utilizing the monies from the Jewish population. The convoy was making a break for the south, hoping they wouldn't be bombed. Gearing swept the last view over the wings and buttresses of his huge castle, built with Jewish money. An engineering officer indicated all was ready, Gearing walked across the road, grabbed the handle of a detonator, pushed the plunger, and Karenhaw exploded into a mass of rubble. And there's a lesson in all this. 
This is where all the pride, it's where all the arrogance, it's where all the swagger in life ends up when we try to live our lives on the basis of a lower compass rather than by the upper compass. And now here we see a situation where Judas has lost what he thought he had gained. He loses his life. So now, he understands current events, Peter does. So should you, so should I. So what he does, beginning in verse 15 down through verse 19, under this heading of seeking God's will scripturally, is that he chronicles current events. He reviews the circumstances. And when you and I are discerning God's direction for our lives, take time to analyze your current circumstances, asking how did we get to where we're at? But having done that, the second aspect of seeking God's will scripturally comes out now in verse 20. Here you find Peter then saying to them, it is written. You can almost hear Billy Graham now. The Bible says. Here Peter says, it is written in the book of the Psalms. And now what Peter does in an extraordinary way is that he makes a connection between two Psalms which are known as the Psalms of Betrayal. The first psalm, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. The second psalm, let another take his place. One from Psalm 69, the other from Psalm 109. Now, in the immediate context, when King David wrote of this, he's describing opposition to himself. But when you and I are looking at promises and prophecies of the Older Testament, we've got to understand there's both a near and distant fulfillment in any prophecy. The near fulfillment was what David was facing in the sense of opposition. Absalom, Ahithophel, and others. But ultimately, the ultimate one of the Davidic line is Jesus Christ, who came it's the son of David. Just as there's a line, a messianic line, that flows naturally to Messiah, Jesus Christ, there's an anti-messianic line, what I call the Antichrist line, where there's been the attempt to keep Messiah from coming into this world. So you saw Herod in the gospel account having baby boys being put to death. You find a Judas trying to keep these things these things of God's will from occurring. It's really Satan at work. But the ultimate is described by the Apostle John, 1 John 2.18, where he warns that the Antichrist is coming in the last hour of history, but already many Antichrists have come. So just as there's a line of Davidic sons that leads to the ultimate Davidic son, Jesus Christ, there's an Antichrist, an anti-Messianic line of power grabbers who attempt to hold the argument against Jesus until the final ultimate Antichrist arrives on the scene and Christ descends upon the Mount of Olives where previously Christ had ascended 
from the Mount of Olives. And all this gets connected in the way in which Peter is teaching. What do you do with all this info? The third aspect, you see, of seeking God's will scripturally after reviewing the circumstances in light of Scripture and then citing the passages pertaining to Scripture is then applying the truths from Scripture. So here comes application time. In verse 21, so one of the men, Peter is telling us, who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So what Peter's now saying to them is that there are going to be two criteria for replacing Judas. It's got to be someone who walked with Jesus. Second of all, it's going to have to be someone who witnessed the resurrection of Jesus. Now then, what you see at this point is you've got to make application of God's word to your circumstances. This is what Peter's done. So now, you seek God's will prayerfully, verse 12 through 14. You seek God's will scripturally, verse 15 down through verse 22. And once you've done this, it's going to be a rubber meets the road moment in your life. Because now thirdly, when needing God's guidance during times of transition, thirdly, seek God's will discerningly. You're going to have to make a decision. And decisions involve having to choose between various options. Otherwise, it wouldn't require a decision. How do I make decisions wisely in my life in a way in which honors God? Prayerfully, scripturally, discerningly. Watch what unfolds, beginning with verse 23. And they put forward two, not one, two men. If you've ever had to deal with decisions, you know you have to deal with options. And sometimes both look very attractive. Having heard what Peter said, okay, who are the men here who have walked with Jesus as well as witnessed the resurrection of Jesus? Two names are advanced. They've put forward one, Joseph, called Basebus, who's also called Justice, and then a second name, Matthias. Now, you've got two options before you as you're trying to make a decision, a critical decision that can impact your life personally as well as your family as well. What comes next? Watch how they close the loop. In verse, in verse 24, they prayed. And you say, Gary, they began with prayer. And you're absolutely right. What I also want you to notice is that they ended with prayer. In other words, they have connected the dots prayerfully, scripturally, discerningly. They're down to two. They prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two have you have chosen, not who we might choose. They're very upper compass people. Notice they use the word Lord. Leadership 
biblical leadership and biblical lordship go hand in hand. Godly leadership in the home requires Christ's lordship over the home. Godly leadership in the church requires Christ's lordship over the church. They are meant to be combined. You, Lord, you, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen. He was praying. His name is Pharaoh. He was praying for a man to come and pass to the people in Geneva. We're told that John Calvin, on his way to Italy, found the regular road closed because of the war between France and Italy. So he had to pass through Geneva. And there he met Pharaoh, who demanded that Calvin stay at Geneva and lead the work of God there. And the historian tells us it is with Geneva that John Calvin's life is so closely intertwined. So no. Decision time. You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all, show which one of these two you've chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And then look what they do next. They cast lots. Dice in the prayer room. Atlantic City meets Jerusalem. What's going on here? You're asking yourself at this point. Well, they began prayerfully. They end prayerfully. The lots now are being cast. But what they are doing at this particular junction in history is that they are dependent upon God's leading, God's direction. They've already identified the fact that this needs to be Christ's lordship. In Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33, we're told the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Lower compass casting lots is when the soldiers were casting lots to divide up the garments of Jesus at the foot of the cross. Upper compass lots is where 11 apostles are trying now, as they've narrowed it down to two, they've begun and ended with prayer, and they've got Scripture saturating their thought processes, applying truth to life, and now they've got to think discerningly. What is interesting is that after the Holy Spirit descends upon the people in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 2, which we'll get to next week, you see no further usage of lots. Because now the Holy Spirit was operative to give guidance. But historically speaking, they're at a junction now as they wait upon the Holy Spirit for that direction. They cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Do you remember the story? Andrew Murray was in incredible pain. Took a room in what we will call a hotel. And one morning while he was eating breakfast in his room, his hostess told him of a woman downstairs who was struggling with life, wanted to know if he could counsel her. He was having a hard time walking, and so he asked for a 
paper and pencil. And he began writing on it. Give her this advice I'm writing down. In time of trouble, say, first of all, say, God brought me here. It's by his will I'm in this situation and that I'll rest. Next, he will keep me here in his love and give me grace in this trial. Then, he'll make the trial a blessing, teaching me lessons he intends me to learn, working in me the grace he means to bestow. At last, in his good time, he can bring me out again. How and when, he knows. In conclusion, say, I am here, number one, by God's appointment. Number two, in God's keeping. Number three, under God's training. Number four, for God's time. And they chose Matthias. You're faced with decisions. Seek God's will prayerfully. Seek God's will scripturally. Seek God's will discerningly. And then ponder the wisdom of an Elizabeth Elliot. We know what we need. A yes or no answer, please, to a simple question, or perhaps a road sign, something quick and easy to point the way, when what we really ought to have is the guide himself. Maps, road signs, a few useful phrases, won't cut it in the Andes. Infinitely better is someone who has been there before and knows the way. We need Jesus. Is he your Lord and Savior? Let's stand together. On land, we face our own Andes experiences. And we're lacking the necessary means to be able to make our way through. On the waters, we're in a vessel, an iron vessel experience. Torn between compasses, lower and upper. What we desperately need, Father, is a clear understanding as to how to proceed by land and by sea. So, Father, take now these three significant recommendations that have flowed out of these verses. Equip us now to apply them to our lives. May each of us now, Father, stay focused upon our guide who offers us necessary grace, what is needed, Father, to make our way through life. We give you now all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.